0: So, we've been in the book of Proverbs for, well, actually, it's now been one week, and we continue. And last week, we looked at two problems of pride. First is blindness, and the second is strife. And today, we'll examine three results or consequences of pride destruction, opposition, and humility. First, destruction, and if there's anything that should fear us about pride, it's this word. Uh, Proverbs 18:12 says this: "Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor." And then Proverbs 16:18 through 19: "Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor." than to divide the spoil with the proud. When we're at the peak of our pride, the climax of what we think of is the best of ourselves, self-exaltation, there's a real danger that comes. And perhaps one thing to note is that it's hard to tell whether you're at the peak of pride or not because that's the nature of pride, is that it's it's blinding. You can't sense it and you're so full of it that you can't tell that you've actually come to the maximum of your pride. But that's a terrible place to be, a dangerous place to be. In the Bible, there are two different kings who experience pride in this way. First in the New Testament, second in the Old. In the New Testament, we're told in Acts chapter 21, King Herod, he was full of this pride. He had given a speech in front of all these Jews and they he had essentially wowed them because he was supposed to be a great rhetorician. He had um, this incredible sense to motivate a crowd. And the people began to shout in verse 22, the voice of a God, not of a man. And so as he's hearing people shouting this in unison together, if you've ever gone to a soccer game and or ever heard one in London, uh, England that their chanting is awesome and somehow they're able to chant exactly together the same thing and it's quite thunderous and so in the same way the people are chanting the voice of a God not of a man all together and so you can imagine how Herod must have felt he was full of himself and so verse 23 explains exactly what happens next immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. What a miserable end. But that's actually not the first time that something like this has happened. We're told in Daniel chapter 4 about King Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of Babylon. And if there was anyone who had reason to boast and to have pride, it was... Nebuchadnezzar, because he had conquered kingdom after kingdom. And so by the time he has reached the pinnacle of his power, he's on top of the roof of his palace. He looks over all of the lands that he has conquered. And then in Daniel chapter 4, verse 30, this is what it records. He says, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And then we're told something happens as soon as he says this. Actually, as the words are coming out of his mouth, which is what verses 31 through 32 says, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will." There, if you have ever studied world history, you know that empire after empire has come and gone. And each one of them has this common thread It's a leader who has said there is no way this empire will fall. and That has been from Babylon to Persia to Rome, Greece, Nazi Germany, Stalinist Soviet Union. And every time they look on the vast empire and say there is no way and perhaps the United States of America that this place will never fall. But that's essentially what happens is that they always fall pride leads to an arrogance of heart that essentially proverbs tells us turns us into fools and we become so full of ourselves and our thoughts our ideas and strategies and plans and knowledge and intellect that we actually begin to believe this self-deception We begin to believe that we are actually better than we truly are. And so like Nebuchadnezzar and Herod, it eventually destroys us. This is not just for the kings of the world and the presidents of the world and the dictators of the world. This danger is as prevalent as it is for us as it is for them. And it really reaches out to all sectors of life, the religious and the secular. For example, the religious. Darren Patrick uh, was a pastor, and this is what he said about pride. He said this in one of his books. When we think of pride, we tend to think about arrogance, the guy who talks about himself all the time. But we don't often recognize it in the guy who spends his days worrying about his own success, even if he never says a word about it. They're both consumed with themselves, but their pride takes different forms. Pride is ultimately an inordinate focus on the self. He had actually said these similar words in a podcast that I was listening to. And the podcast was about his journey, his story. He was a pastor of a church of thousands and he wrote books, speaking at conferences, trained other pastors and leaders. And due to moral failure, he was expelled from his church. That's a story that perhaps we hear far too often, more than we should, and the tragedy of it is terrible. But even worse is that not long after that podcast was given, he actually killed himself, he committed suicide. So with that in mind, look back at those words that he wrote, I mean, this is a man who was successful, at least from a religious perspective, from a Christian perspective, he was a man who preached the gospel, who actually saw people saved through his ministry. And yet, despite that, he found, actually what, one of the things he was sharing is that as he got more popular, it became more difficult to hang on to that popularity. That's, you hear about that, especially about famous people, singers, actors. I mean, how many child actors there are? People that you think, oh, they were so popular once, and now they're no longer around. And when you hear those stories, and what he was saying is, you actually have to work harder to maintain that popularity. You have to go to more conferences, write more books. And the, the sort of the pressure to keep that going, it ate away his soul to the point where he just felt as though he could not go on living. That's tragic, really. And so it's not just pastors and teachers, though, who need to be careful about this the the scourge of self-exaltation is in all of our hearts we're tempted to want to control to make sure that we uphold within ourselves our own identity our own worth based on our own efforts and in that sense we essentially want to be God and i have shared this before but It really is a displacement of God as God in our lives. Either God is the Lord of your life or you are the Lord of your life. And the question is, who is the Lord in your life? Who's on your throne? Who's in the throne of your heart? Biblical scholar Daniel Doriani, uh, I really like what he says about this idea of, especially about this quest for knowledge. He says, the quest for knowledge, even biblical knowledge, can lead us to trust in that knowledge rather than in God himself. The thirst for knowledge can be laced with pride and vanity. The temptations or idols that stand closest to godliness can also lead us away from God. All of us have things we want to know. Where should I go to college? Whom should I marry? What does the future hold for this relationship, friendship, this romantic interest? Will I have children? Will they be healthy, obedient, happy? The list is endless as to the questions. And we want answers. Don't you want answers to all those things that you're waiting upon? And if you're like me, waiting is really difficult. It's hard. And if you believe God and you believe that he is an omniscient God, meaning that he knows all things, and then you say, I'm going to pray to God for answers. I'm going to find the will of God in my life and you don't hear anything what happens then isn't it tempting to be frustrated and angry with god to think are you there do you even care about me i don't know if you look and consider that that pursuit of knowledge from god is to say i don't want to trust you god i want to trust the knowledge that you provide i want the answer i don't want to believe that you're going to provide it in due time And sometimes the answer isn't necessarily what I want. It's what you know is best for me. But me being the God of my life, I say, I don't care. I don't care what you say. I want what I believe is good for me. And then we get angry. We demand answers from him. And we don't have any desire to trust him and to follow him. Where should I go to college? Well, whom should I marry? Um, what job should I take and waiting and waiting that quest for knowledge even a perhaps a doubting knowledge God I have all these questions for you and you don't give me any answers and so I want it now I want it in my time in my way and if you don't give it to me then you're not loving you're not merciful you can make knowledge about God greater than God himself. And I do believe that that is one temptation that Christians face on an ongoing, regular basis. When I was in seminary, we used to, um, a group of us used to cover our books with contact paper. I don't know if anyone do that, anyone in this room ever? Yeah, I know, you're not as strange as us uh, people who are seminarians, but we used to take, you know, clear contact paper with a cutting board and exacto knife, and we would take a ruler and cut out exactly and then perfectly align the book even squeezing out all the bubbles that happen <laughs> air bubbles and we would we did that because we loved our books these are books about God and you know with that comes the fear of lending out a book because if you got it back and they crease the the you know the end binding be so frustrated or if they writ wrote in it or highlighted it Remember, these are books about God. It's when you make the end goal, I want a nice book rather than what does it say about the Lord and how can I share that? The quest for knowledge. Now, this is definitely the case if you go to seminary. Sometimes I've shared this before, but there were numerous times where different students who are preparing to be preachers and pastors, they wouldn't go to church on Sunday because there'd be a Greek exam on Monday. And so... The end goal was not to know God. The end goal was to get an A in a class that talked about God. I know that you're probably thinking, well, that's ludicrous. But isn't it possible that you do that as well? Isn't it possible that the end goal of coming to church on Sunday is actually to get something from God, a healthy life? Um, My kids are actually... They're morally doing well, or they get into the school of their choice. I want to, there's something that we want from God, but the question is do you want God Himself, even if everything else was miserable in your life? When you see that, you just are mesmerized by that type of impact. The, in those times where you go to places like where Hans is at in Africa and you visit, these grandmothers who are literally impoverished. I, I can't even describe it where these, the, the things that they eat are, and I've seen it myself, is a, a bowl of mice, you know, and they're just laying there dead. And that's literally all they have to eat. And they're still worshiping and singing and praising and praying. You know, when you're in that state and you're still worshiping and praying and praising God, you really love God and not just the things that God gives, gives you. Why doesn't God give us everything we want in our time? The answer is in Lamentations chapter three, verses 22 to 23. It's a really wonderful text. It's a, it's a passage of scripture that I think for many of us, we might've heard in different forms in songs or the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I want to focus on one phrase there. They are new every morning. Why does God give you mercies every morning? Because you need it every morning. The mercies are for the day, not for tomorrow, not for a week from today. Jesus described it in his great prayer that he said, my disciples, when you pray, pray like this, give us this day our daily bread. And when Jesus is saying that, it's reflecting back to the Israelites when they were in the desert and they had manna, but that manna would only last for the day and then no rot or it would just disappear. And then God would have to provide new manna every day And the reason God did that versus giving them a storehouse of manna or providing more than a daily bread, weekly bread, monthly bread, uh, yearly bread, you know why God does that? Because he knows our hearts. He knows that our tendency is that we want to store up things for ourselves. We want to actually say, "Okay, let let me think of a strategy and plan to make this last as long as possible. And we'd start doing it by my effort, my strength. And when that happens, you don't need God in your life. Because again, our tendency is to make ourselves God. We're the decision maker of our life. We determine timing, um, efficiency, how things should be accomplished. And God is saying, I'm sorry, either I'm God or you are. But if you're God, be careful of the consequences of that action. No, He gives us daily bread, new mercies every morning. Because the next morning, on that day where it is so hard and you just get through, you eat by, isn't it a grace that a new day comes? If you've ever been in a conflict with someone you love, sometimes talking about, and my wife and I, we talk about this, sometimes the the times you don't have really significant conversations is right before you're about to go to bed. You're tired, worn, there's a lot of Just a lot of angst, and it's dark out. And I know sometimes you just look outside, and when it's dark, it feels dark inside your house, but in your own heart. And you can have the greatest of conflicts, but then the next day, there's a newness. It's amazing how that works. But that's only a mere physical symbol of what is a reality, which is that God always gives you enough for the day to make it through to the next day. Not to make it through to weeks but to the next day, because he is saying, I want you to hold on to me. I want you to trust me. I'm only going to provide just enough for you to make it because I know you, when you, when you get more, you depend only on yourself because I do. And so instead, I'm not going to always give you the answers. Again, there's so many parallels to parenting. There are times, as parents, you, you say, for whatever reason, and there's some specific reasons, maybe due to dangers, maybe due to issues, where you don't talk about sex with a four-year-old. You say there's going to be a time, even though they ask, mommy, where did I come from? Wait, how did I get here? And there's a time where you actually say, in due time, I will provide the answers. But for today, let's focus on today. If we, who are sinful, limited in our knowledge parents, can think that way, how much more a Heavenly Father who knows everything about us and who wants your absolute best. And that means to place you in a position of trusting him. Can we trust him? Can we trust him with our knowledge? That, yes, pursue answers, know and ask deep questions. But at a certain point, there's going to come to a, a point where you're going to have to say, all right, now I have to trust you. So recognize that if you don't do that, that's when pride just kicks in and you come to your greatest arrogance, self-exaltation. And the, great, the danger here is destruction. You will be in a place where the further you push the limit of saying, I am God, I'm in control of my life, then get ready for destruction. Secondly, the second result of pride is that God is opposed to you. He's an adversary to you. He's your enemy. Chapter 15, verse 25 of Proverbs, the Lord tears down the house of the proud, but maintains the widow's boundaries. And then chapter 16, 5, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. When you live your life as one who says, I am the Lord of my life, I'm the king, I'm the one in control, I refuse to yield to anyone but me, it's not that your husband is your opponent or your wife or your coworker or your boss. The person who is your greatest adversary at that point is God himself. He's gonna tear down the house. And some of you have worked really hard to buy your house. Some of you have renovated your house. You've lived in another part of your house or rented out an apartment, and you've spent a lot of time building that house from scratch. Well, imagine suddenly God says, I'm against you, and I'm gonna tear down that house, gone in an instant. But it's not just houses that are torn down in our lives. A career that you've studied from K all through grad school labored if god is against you eventually there will come a day where he is opposed to you your heart is an abomination a hatred to him he hates it and i know we don't like to think of god that way but you must think of god that way because to think of god any lesser is to place you in grave danger in hebrews chapter 12 verses 28 through 29 we're given a, a real picture of who God is therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire uh, you know I uh, every morning I make oatmeal for myself and there's a you know a pot you this this pot that I have it has, Sort of a, I don't know, like a, a heating protection thing. I don't know how to describe it on both the front side and the back side of the handle. But on the sides, it doesn't. I don't know why they made it that way. They didn't wrap it all the way around. So when you grab it, it burns the side, just this line on the side of your hand. And every time I touch it, and I always forget, this is, good, this is age. Every time I touch it, my instinct is to jerk back. This is a small little sliver of cooking oatmeal, you know, and I can't help but pull back my hand. That's the reality of our nervous system. It it responds to pain due to a little bit of a change of temperature. Now, think about this. Our God is a consuming fire. Fire is painful. That is one way you would say, I never want anyone to die this way, by being burned to death. It's horrific. When you imagine that God, because of his holiness, and again, I'm not saying this because I think we have to have this terrifying view of God per se all the time, but I think if we don't have a true view of God in that way, then we just take him very lightly, as though he's meaningless to us. And we don't take anything that we do seriously. But if we examine this, that God is a consuming fire, and then, as well, Hebrews 9, 27, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that, face judgment. Death is coming for every single person. It's, it's sort of the, um, I don't know, if, I've shared this before, but. When I first was doing pastoral ministry, I did a lot of weddings, but I do almost none now because I'm so old. No, no young people want to ever be married by an old person like me, but I do more funerals because old people want an old person to do funerals, and I just hear more and more, and I know some of you are experiencing this today, that the slow death of loved ones, parents, people around you, and they're taking their their last breaths. And then you go to funerals and you read the biographies that are told at the funerals. They were born in this city. Oftentimes they talk about where they went to college. They graduated from here. They uh, um, went to this grad school. They graduated summa cum laude, perhaps. They started this company at this age, or they worked here, and they labored here, and they had this this family, and, and then it goes through the list and then it gets to the very end of the list and then that's it and it's gone and no matter how long that person has lived from 1 year old to a 100 years old the reality is that we will face the Lord in judgment who is a consuming fire and if you face him with pride Proverbs says Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. He will not go unpunished. And I know you might think, but people are so nice. Oh, but pride, it is an ugly heart. And it's in every one of us. The way it ekes itself out, even in the smallest of ways in thinking, I know how to control my life best. All you need to do is drive on the road and you'll see pride. Stand in line somewhere and you'll see pride. Go to Disneyland and you'll see pride. Pride is everywhere. And when we recognize that we're that person who stands before the Lord in judgment, know that every ounce of pride will go punished. It will be punished. Now, the thing about pride is that pride is really successful in this world in athletics so often we're told that you have to be a jerk in order to survive in order to excel you have to be arrogant and proud just listen to michael jordan's hall of fame speech and you will hear pride Uh, we're told on the basketball court in all different realms of athletics it's all about being the worst person being the angry person being the person who has the foulest of mouths being the person who is ang- you know just the most who's going to vilify everyone around them that person is going to excel is that true sometimes the answer is yes it's also true in the workplace the person and you perhaps know this and maybe you're even this person if you act in a certain way if you take certain shortcuts If you know the right people in a certain way, you can excel in your workplace. And some of the the people who have excelled the most in the military, in politics, in law firms, in business, some of the worst people in the world with the greatest amount of arrogance and pride. That's in education, in science, as an engineer. Success often does come with arrogance of heart. So what am I saying? Should you take that road? If you want to succeed in this world, maybe that's a road you should consider. But if you believe God's word here, the Lord tears down the house of the proud. And then chapter 16, five, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured. Don't think this is something that could happen. Proverbs is saying it is definitely going to happen. You will not go unpunished if you are proud and arrogant before God. So, yes, there are kings like Herod and Nebuchadnezzar, Pharaoh, Satan, who is succeeding so well for so long. But there will be a day where there will be a reckoning. James 4 6 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So, yes, you can succeed in this world. Yes, you can actually make a lot of money, be at the top of your class, at the top of the business world, the CEO. You can excel in all different ways. But when you are taking your last breath and you see the Lord face to face, that pride will not go unpunished. And the punishment of that pride, seeing God as a consuming fire, it, it will last forever, forever we're not talking about a decade, or a century, or a millennia, we're talking about forever, eternally. And there are so many souls that are saying along with the parable that Jesus gave of the rich man and and Lazarus, where he's saying, why didn't I listen? Why did I spend so much of my life building barns when I gave away everything? The final result of pride will be ultimate humility. Proverbs 16.5 says that there is an assurance, as we saw, that pride will always go uh, punished. And then Philippians 9-10 says every knee will bow before Jesus. The word every is really important. It means all. So all people will bow before Christ one day. When he comes again, there's not going to be a people who bow and the other people who don't. It's gonna be some are going to bow because they bow in awe and reverence in wonder in delight in joy. And there are gonna be some who are miserable and angry and rebellious and resistant, but they will be forced to bow. But everyone will bow, everyone. And that's Paul's point in Philippians 2. The humble knows that because everyone bows, that this is the God we can worship. The humble are always wanting to trust God. Proverbs 29, 23, one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. This verse is repeated throughout the Bible in many different ways. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Or as Jesus put in Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the humble will experience an ex- exaltation of power now I want to describe for you what biblical humility is first of all it is not self-pity and low self-esteem it's not a personality so humility is not just someone who is reserved and quiet in fact you could be full of self-pity and have really low self-esteem and be full of yourself because that's what self-pity and low self-esteem is. It's all about self. It's just as proud as the arrogant person who is boisterous, rambunctious, and who lives their life pressing other people down. The self-pitying person is equally proud to that person. They're just two sides of the same coin. They look different, but the heart is the same because that self-pitying person is stuck. The thing about self-pity is that you're not willing to listen to anyone. You're so full of yourself. You're saying, woe is me. I'm miserable. I can't do anything right. And then you come in to that friend or that family member's life and you try to encourage them and say, well, no, here are the many different ways you bless me. And they say, no, no, no. I don't care what you say. This is who I am. I'm low. I'm miserable. That's no different than the proud and arrogant person who is just talking of themselves all the time same person, same heart, they're stuck with themselves, And the expressions such as shyness or um, self-focus, sense of failure, it's all about me. But the humble, the humble has power. The humble is courageous. The humble is powerful enough to be generous and sacrificial and kind And merciful despite shyness and introversion so this is this is the point is that you can be shy and introverted and be humble and you can be shy and introverted and be arrogant and proud it's not a personality thing because the humble person isn't stuck with self-pity they're not full of themselves they actually have space in their heart for the Holy Spirit to work, to move. And this person is so confident in Christ. They're confident in all that Jesus has done for them, what he's won for them at the cross. And so they lean on him. It's not, again, it doesn't mean that they are never afraid or they're never timid, never shy, but there's a there's a sense that their worth and their value rests solely in Christ and not in what other people think of them, not in their own personal achievements or failures, but in Christ alone. And that is a freedom of other people's opinions because they know the only one who matters is what Jesus thinks of them. That's humility, is caring most about what Christ thinks of you, not what anyone else thinks of you. But you don't get to this place until you realize that you cannot attain this by your own strength and your own power. Look at Proverbs 334. I wanna call this a gospel proverb. Towards the scorners, he, that is God, is scornful. So we saw God hates the arrogant. He has an abomination against the proud. But to the humble, God gives favor. To those who are crying out to him, it's the humble who are free to forgive and who are compassionate, who are kind. It's the humble who doesn't need to fight for their own rights. It's the humble who, even though they're battling pride and sin in their hearts, they are quick to recognize there's no way they can defeat this by their own strength. And they lean on something external upon themselves. They are the ones who recognize they're a sinner first. I really like the way Pastor Tim Keller, he puts it. He says, the way to it. The way to have true power is to give your power away and serve. The way to feel eternally great about yourself is to admit you're a hopeless, helpless sinner and repent and say, you have every right to send me to hell, but because of Jesus Christ, accept me. Once you feel and sense and know and believe he has, to the degree you understand he has done that, that is the beginning of the humility. That is incredible inner confidence of your worth to him and that he's caring for you in life. It's the beginning of this thing that encourages, enables you to have courage, enables you to forgive, enables you just to lay down your life for other people, enables you to have a kind of force field around you that creates community with the people around you. Remember when I was sharing how those who are older, their roots are so deep of being full of themselves, of pride. It's almost like the older you get, the force field gets bigger and wider if pride has not been dealt with. But when you are recognizing, and this is the key point, there has to be within you an acknowledgement that God has the right to send you to hell. But because of Christ, he doesn't. If you're not believing that, that you are an absolute wretched sinner, apart from Christ, and that if he is just and merciful, true in his character, actually, if, if he's truly good and holy and all of the, the fullness of who God is, then he has every right to send me to hell, and there's nothing I could do about it, but because of all that God has done through his son, he's a merciful God. He doesn't do that. And no one would think about doing that except for God himself. No one would think about the plan of salvation except for God himself. It is that beginning point that enables you, empowers you to be humble. Because at that point you say, well, there's no strength in me to do this on my own. I cannot defeat a single sin by my willpower. Not long enough, not consistent enough. I know I'll be regularly angry. I know I'll struggle with anxiety. I know I'll struggle with lust. I know i struggle with um, absolutely everything that draws me away from God. It's just impossible for me to turn. It has to be me. It has to be the Lord. And I need to surrender my life to him. And I deserve everything that I get. That power is what starts giving you the, actually the enabling power to forgive others, to care for others, to be sacrificial towards others, to be merciful and kind and That, as Tim Keller is pointing out, is what draws community. Because when you're you're surrounded by a bunch of people who are not regularly trying to put you down or thinking they're better than you, suddenly everyone wants, you just start being drawn to one another, serving one another, loving one another, and serving people outside. It builds that community, the humility and power of the gospel. But the proud can never see this because they are so full of themselves that their only road is to think of themselves better than everyone else. But the humble always believes he deserves condemnation, but because of the grace of God, he's been rescued and he's freed. Let me just close with this. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2:4: let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That is a really hard verse. Again, if you're like me, you find that verse hard because my instinct is to think of my own interest, not the interest of others. It's so difficult to do. And yet, how can you do this? Verses five through eight is why Paul wrote the next verses. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The only way that you can consider others better than yourselves, the only way you can actually be a means of God's grace and to experience God's uh, experience, the power, enabling power of humility is to actually see that Jesus did it for us first he did the work and if god humbled himself this way how can we not how can we not so we put our to death our pride today let's pray together father it is humbling to consider that you sent your son who would empty himself taking on the very form of a slave being even obedient to death on a cross so that we could be, along with Christ, highly exalted. Help us, O Lord, to lay down our pride, to cast down our crowns. We have so many little trinkets that we think of as so special. Our job, our careers, our money, the schools we went to how our children are doing in the ball field, on the courts, in the dance studios, whether they have awards which show us that we are the best parents, all of this, it just clouds our hearts, oh Lord. So Father, we just really pray that you would help us to see that uh, we, we just really need you so much. May we lay down all of our pride, and in doing so, you tell us in your word, you will lift us up. And we just want to come before you acknowledging that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.